You're listening to The Profile. Hello and welcome to The Profile podcast. I'm Andy Peck. For the past 17 years, I've been interviewing leaders in the church and the wider culture. In the coming weeks, you'll be hearing the best of these conversations, plus some brand new ones as well. It was leadership expert John Maxwell who famously said, leadership is influence. Some have massive influence through their role as a leader of a church or business, a charity or a family. Others have influence in their neighbourhood, a network of friends or through leisure interests. It's our prayer that these conversations will help you in whatever spheres you have influence. This show is brought to you by Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get full online access and the print magazine every month by becoming a subscriber. See special offers available now at premierchristianity.com. If you're listening in the UK, you will know that personal witness needs to be carefully practised with many suspicious or even hostile to the Christian faith. You can take the opportunities God gives, but you probably need to tread very carefully, especially in the workplace. But whatever the spiritual atmosphere, we know that God is able to break through any barriers erected in the minds and hearts of people he is seeking. This phenomenon is picked up by Oz Guinness in his latest book, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. I say latest because this book marks 50 years of Oz Guinness books, his first book written in 1973, The Dust of Death, The 60s Counterculture, and How It Changed America Forever. He has written or edited more than 30 books that offer insight into current cultural, political, and social contexts. These include The Call, Time for Truth, Unspeakable, A Free People's Suicide, The Global Public Square, Last Call for Liberty, Carpe Diem, Redeemed, and the Magna Carta of Humanity. This latest, Signals of Transcendence, describes how well-known individuals, and especially writers, have spoken of a moment or event in their life when they became aware that this world was not all there is, and were prompted to search. This includes C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, G.K. Chesterton, and Malcolm Muggeridge of the Ten People included. Oz is English and was educated in the UK. In the late 60s, he was a leader at the Labrie community in Switzerland, alongside uh, Francis Schaeffer, and he was also a freelance reporter for the BBC. He later made his home in the United States, where he has lived most of his life, now living in McLean, Virginia. And I'm delighted that he's joining me today via Zoom. I'm looking forward to exploring how this idea of signals of transcendence might help your life and witness, as well as touching on his reflections on changes for Christians in leadership over his publishing career. Great joy to chat with you today, Oz. Well, thanks, Andy. A real delight to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so what was the spur to write the book, first of all? Well, the idea is Peter Berger's. You know, if you think of the rising nuns today, religious nuns, and as you said, the opposition to faith in so many circles, the simple fact is that many, many people have experiences in their lives that beep, 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 and puncture what they believe and point to something else, which, if it's true, would make all the difference, and they become seekers, not believers, seekers, searchers. 
So I've got 10 stories that tell this in various ways. Uh, and one of those stories is Peter Alberger, who uh, I understand was a mentor of yours. You mentioned Rumor of Angels, his, one of his famous books. Well, he's written two books, but that was the most famous, perhaps. But that's right. He was my mentor, sociologically, and then became a great friend. And we actually hoped to write this book together. But sadly, he died before we could do it. And so I've written this, the book on my own, but always simply 10 stories, not arguments, certainly not proofs, but stories that prompt people to think about searching. And that book, Rumor of Angels, as I understand it, it invited uh, readers to consider how humor particularly was a, a factor in understanding that there's a little bit more than uh, we think there is in life. Well, he had about 10 different signals in that one chapter, and he was well known for his humor. He loved humor. He wrote a book on humor, and uh, he insisted most books on humor are humorless. <laughs> yes, so he insisted on putting a joke every page or so. <laughs> Fabulous. And um, we, we, we won't have time to give more than the flavor of uh, everyone, but uh, you mentioned Windsor Elliott, which, uh, the supermodel, who found that viewing a tiger in an unlikely setting was uh, a bit of a spur for her. So just remind us of, of, of her. Well, that's an unusual one. I mean, she grew up in L.A. in a very wealthy, laid-back Southern California climate and on a whim took to fashion modeling and rocketed to the top. San Francisco, Paris, New York, and was a Ford girl, found herself at the age of 19, 20, engaged to a French baron, her own age, multimillionaire, and they'd fly to Paris every weekend for incredible times and parties for the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Salvador Dali, Pablo Picasso, and so on. In other words, the world was her oyster. She was earning a fortune, and everything seemed wonderful. But one weekend at one of the parties in the Hotel Maurice, Salvador Dali's apartment, he had his pet cheetah, a painted ocelot, and this beautiful animal was pacing restlessly through the very well-heeled crowd. And Jenny was suddenly struck by the incredible chasm between the beauty of this animal and the caricature of what it was supposed to be. And immediately, as if the world, the bottom dropped out of her world, and she looked at the people and thought, we are incredible caricatures too. And it just hit her like a heart attack, and she thought, I've got to search for the meaning of life and went back to New York. And that's what started her search. Her discovery came a lot later. And that's another story. But that animal there was the turning point in her search. Uh, and Oz, uh, did you have a favorite account of the 10? Well, the one that probably makes the most sense to most people is W.H. Auden. And you remember when he graduated from Oxford, he was an atheist. He was a left-wing radical, fought on against uh, Franco in the Spanish Civil War, and he was notoriously gay in a time when it was unfashionable. And he came over to New York to escape the looming clouds of war in Europe. Now, there's no television, so how did you follow things? You went to the local cinema and saw the documentary news each weekend. And he went to his local cinema one weekend in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, not knowing that the audience was largely German. Now, to be fair, in 1939, Britain had declared war on Germany and Germany on Britain, 
but America was neutral. So the Germans supported Germany and the English people supported the Brits and so on. But as the documentary unfolded, it was on the siege of Poland and Nazi stormtroopers were bayoneting women and children brutally. And the German audience cried out, kill them, kill them on their own side. Orden was horrified. And in five minutes in the darkness, his worldview was overturned. He'd always thought people were basically good. But looking at that, he knew, no, humanity has a deep flaw. But deeper still, he'd always thought there were no absolutes in the world. Everything is relative to your class, your country, your background, whatever. But he knew as he looked at this, this was absolutely evil. But he had no absolute by which to be able to say it was absolute. And as he put it later, he left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute and met Jesus. But it was that experience in the darkness which turned him around, a, a signal of transcendence. Absolute evil demands an absolute judgment. That's a terrific story, uh, Oz. Um, and as you reflect on signals of transcendence from a biblical angle, I'm just wondering uh, where you might go. We're obviously, Paul, uh, speaking to the um, at Mars Hill, talks about how God's placed people that they may seek after him and find him. Um, there's maybe the work of the Spirit in John 16. I think the Spirit comes to convict uh, uh, people of sin and righteousness and judgment. I don't know where you go <laughs> to, to make sense of it, because we all know what you're talking about is absolutely true. Well, all of that, Andy, but also think of the Old Testament, eternity in our hearts. In other words, as Paul says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth. Mm. It's there, but we suppress it. Right. And in many ways, one of the stories is of the great art historian Kenneth Clark, who had the most extraordinary experience of beauty in Florence. And he said, I felt the finger of God. And the experience lasted for several months, but he suppressed it. He thought he went back to London and owned up to that. People would think he's out of his mind. And as we know later, he actually was in the middle of an affair, and it would have been morally rather challenging. So he literally brushed it off. But of course, his story, beyond his own two memoirs, people are writing his biography. At his funeral, a priest got up, an Irish priest, and said, Lord Clark wants you to know that he was baptized and taken into the church in faith in the last six months of his life. And people were horrified. Come on, <laughs> deathbed conversion. Who concocted this one? His wife got up then and said, no, it's true. He brushed it off at a certain point in his life, but returned to it later. Well, well, it's uh, terrific to hear. Um, so uh, do you think everyone has a, a signal of transcendence in their life, or is it something that happens a lot to people? What, what's your kind of feel for how the Lord works in these things? I think it happens to more people than often they realize. A friend of mine actually took that story of Lord Clark and shared it with a group of CEOs and said, any of you had an experiences like this, thinking that maybe two or three might, and out of about, I think, 25 or so, all but one had had similar experiences. Well, yes. In other words, the beeping is there, the signals. The question is, do people listen and follow through on it? Well, as I intimated in my introduction, having read the book and uh, reflected on this, uh, for, for many Christian seeking to witness to, for Christ and, and perhaps finding it difficult 
in the circumstances, particularly in a workplace or whatever. The, the fact that God is at work in these ways is is a wonderful, can be a wonderful question, I suppose, for us to ask people. Well, absolutely. But um, it's particularly important in our modern world. Peter Berger, again, describes the modernity as a world without windows. Or if you like, take the parable that Plato gave us or the cave Socrates gave us. Now, as we're living like prisoners in a cave and all we see as reality is the flickering shadows on the wall cast by a fire behind us. So if someone escapes the cave and sees the sunlight and then comes back in, he's considered a nutcase. They would prefer to live in the cave as prisoners because they're used to the shadows. And that's our world today, because in the modern world, particularly the Western world, what's unseen is unreal. Whereas for most of history, not just Jews and Christians, but Hindus, Buddhists, animists, pagans, witchcraft followers, you name it, the unseen was never unreal. But part of our, we're, we're in a flat earth universe as materialists. And I think this is a way through which a lot of people have an awakening personally and are able to escape the cave which they need to. Oz, uh, I mentioned in my introduction that you've had 50 years of, uh, of publishing, so many congratulations on the reaching that <laughs> that point in, in life. Um, but I, I'm just wondering, reflecting on Christians in leadership and how things have changed. I appreciate your particularly your, that side of the Atlantic in the United States. Um, how, how you think the challenges have changed for Christians, say, back in 73 to 2023? Well, in all sorts of ways. I mean, in the Christian world, clearly, when I came to faith in 1960, the great challenge was liberal revisionism in theology. Uh, that's no longer the challenge. Most evangelicals and most Catholics stood firm against all the inroads of liberal theology and much of the church that did follow that has effectively committed institutional suicide since then, particularly over here in the Episcopal Church and so on. But now we're facing a new challenge, which is, I call it the red wave and the rainbow wave, classical uh, cultural Marxism and the sexual revolution. And Christians have caved into that uncritically in a way they never, ever thought of doing with liberal revisionism, which is very sad. Now, over here, there's lots of uh, talk of leadership. It's almost a cliche in America. I always stress to Americans, though, they, they tend to make the mistake of thinking Leadership is the person at the top or at the front, you know, the president, the prime minister, the CEO, the general, or whatever. No, the biblical view of leadership is everyone in every sphere at their own level, taking the initiative and the responsibility for what needs to be done right in front of them. And I love the Jewish story of Nashon. I don't know if you know Nashon. He's no. mentioned in the Old Testament, usually as a relative of Aaron. But actually, the Jews talk about a story which not in the Bible, but in their tradition. Nashon was the man who, when they were crossing the Red Sea, Moses held up his staff. The Lord sent the wind and drove back the waters, but the people were very, very hesitant. But it mildly, one man strode out. If the Lord had said this, he was going. And he strode in with the water up to his neck until the water started to subside and everyone followed him. In other words, leadership at every level, people with initiative, responsibility, doing what needs to be done. 
Oh, I love I love that definition, Oz. Um, I recall you saying in a, a talk one time of uh, you were filling uh, your car with petrol, I think in Southampton, you were working at Bar Church, and you realised that God was calling you beyond the confines of the church into into something different, that you actually wanted to be talking in that marketplace. You look back at 50 years, I guess you're looking back uh, joyfully on how the Lord's used you during those times? Oh, absolutely. You know, but later I talked to John Stott, who came to faith a generation before me, mm. and we both agreed that in the world of evangelicalism then, to be really all out for Jesus, you were either a minister, a missionary, or an evangelist, full-time yes. Christian work. <laughs> and so I was not ordained, but I worked with Lee Samuel and the Barbar Church, and I loved the church and the people. But it wasn't me, and I felt incredibly frustrated. And that wonderful garage attendant in Southampton, I realized he was the first non-Christian I'd talked to in several weeks, because <laughs> Baba was a womb-to-tomb, wonderful Christian culture. <laughs> yes. But there was nothing about the world outside which I loved. And so that's what then, out of my frustration, one of the elders gave me William Perkins' Treatise on Calling which introduced the idea that calling is everyone, everywhere, in everything. So if you're called to be a pastor or a minister, terrific. But if you're called to be a bank manager or a high school teacher or whatever it is, equally terrific. Now, that was liberation for me. We've gone a long way since then, but that for me was an incredible turning point. Fabulous. And, and you've, of course, written on this topic. You have a book called Calling, haven't you? Yes, The Call. Oh, sorry, the call. Sorry. Yeah, by far my bestseller. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it touches calling is at the heart of the gospel, but it also touches the heart of a sense of purpose in our individual lives. So it resonates very, very deeply with people. Everyone wants to know the meaning of life and then their individual purpose in life. Um, as you reflect on... This latest book, uh, Oz, what would be the kind of things you'd hope it accomplishes in its, uh, in its uh, reading? Well, we have these opinion polls almost daily in the papers about the rising religious nuns and the triumph of secularism, and I think that's absolute rubbish. Obviously, people are incurably religious in one way or another, and this is a way of trying to open people to searching. It's a companion book to my earlier book, The Great Quest, which is a description of the journey. Again, it's not an argument, but just a description, a brochure, as it were, describing the stages that a seeker will go through on the journey. But stage one is the absolute critical one, a time for questions, which gets people going, because questions constitute a seeker. So this book, The Signals of Transcendence, is an attempt for people to be open to seeing so much of life is raising questions, and we need to listen to the beep, beep, beep of these things, as so many of these people did, and it led on to their discovery. Often not immediately. For W.H. Auden, it was pretty quick. For C.S. Lewis, it was more than a decade, and so on. For Malcolm Muggeridge, even longer. But the key thing is getting people going. And, of course, that links somewhat to your time with Labrie and Francis Schaeffer and the kind of questions he was asking a generation ago? Well, he was brilliant at asking people's questions, but it was almost unfair at the end of the 60s and the early 70s. Everyone was wrestling and debating and searching. And then the me decade came, the mid-70s, 
and that will stop. Now, in some ways, the younger generation today are closer to the late 60s. But where people are not raising questions, we've got to be the question raisers to help people to think. Well, Oz, it's been terrific to chat with you. Uh, thank you so much for this book and for your uh, a lifetime of ministry, helping those who uh, have been uh, ministering outside of the, the walls of the church or indeed the uh, the, the missionary uh, labels, shall we, shall we say. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Andy. I live here in America. I have not become American. I'm still thoroughly English. I wish I was able to get home, but the Lord's called me here for the moment. But it's a great privilege to be back with you today. Well, thank you. And it's, uh, you certainly sound English. You haven't uh, <laughs> changed, your, changed your accent any. So it's uh, terrific to, to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. It was super to chat with Oz Guinness. I would encourage you to get a copy of his latest book, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life, published by IVP. I mentioned that he includes uh, the stories of C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, G.K. Chesterton, and Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, but also pieces on Peter Alberger, uh, to which Oz referred during his uh, talk, Peter Halley, Windsor Elliott, Leo Tolstoy, Whitfield Guinness, a relation, relation of... Uh, Oz's and Kenneth Clark. Do listen back to the recording again. There's tons of wisdom there. Imagine if someone you knew had one of those moments, one of those signals of transcendence, but has never spoken to anyone about it. Maybe you could prompt them with a question. God is knocking on their door. Maybe it's time you pointed this out and helped them in their exploration. I love too Oz's definition of biblical leadership as Everyone in every sphere, at their own level, taking the initiative and responsibility for doing what needs to be done right in front of them. Everyone in every sphere, at their own level, taking the initiative and responsibility for doing what needs to be done right in front of them. And certainly on this show, we've always said that leaders includes those with a named role as a leader but that we're all called to leadership in our own way as we seek to follow Jesus. Certainly he's training us to take initiative as we're part of his kingdom work. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then your apprenticeship to him will mean taking on more and more responsibility as he enables you. So maybe you've never seen yourself as a leader. What needs to be done in your family, church, charity, business, circle of friends? Maybe you need to take initiative and responsibility. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.